Hello, and welcome to the Reader Podcast. My name is Frances Macmillan, and I work for the Reader, which is a national charity bringing thousands of people together every week all over the UK in order to experience and enjoy great literature through shared reading. In a shared reading group, we read aloud from a poem or short story or a novel, and then we talk together about what we've read. Together then, we visit new places, other times, and share experiences beyond our own. And doing this together forges new connections to ourselves and to each other. Later in this podcast, we'll hear a bit more about how shared reading works and listen in to a group reading a short story together. But first, sometimes particular lines of poetry, even just a word or two from a poem, can run through the brain on loop, like snatches of song. A kind of literary earworm. We asked some colleagues from the reader which bits of poetry are proving particularly resonant for them at the moment. Hi, I'm Claire Ellis, um, Head of Learning and Quality at The Reader. Um, yeah, that, that question about having a literary earworm at the moment, a line from a book or poem that, that keeps popping into your head. Um, often for me, the line can be what from what I'm currently reading and I'm, I'm reading um, The Secret Garden at the moment. And the line for me at the moment is hysterics makes lumps <laughs> it may sound a bit of an odd line but and maybe not the most elaborative sentences but it's an important one for me to, to remember um it's from um as i say from the secret garden and it's from the chapter called the tantrum and um it's when Mary Lennox has shocked the whole household by revealing to Colin, the young heir, that um, what he is actually suffering from is not a physical illness, but the illness of fear, if you like. Um, you know, I guess um, another quote that often does come to mind, um, I think it might be a Paradise Lost one about how um, the mind can make a heaven out of hell and a, a, a hell out of heaven um, or, or, or something some, something like that. And I guess Mary's way, hysterics makes lumps is another way of 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 putting it um you know my nan used to say that the mind is a wonderful thing um but it can also be your own worst enemy and in this scene while mary is in many ways kind of quite brutal actually in how she talks to to colin you know it, it is quite shocking like there's no sympathy there at all um but in a way, it is the kind of truth, uh, the reality that he needs to hear, um, that you know he's he's not he's not physically ill. Um, it's it's his his fear, those hysterics that that that's actually making him ill. Um, and when Mary kind of screams that at him, uh, from that point he starts to be less afraid. And he starts to live. Hello, I'm Amanda Brown. I've been working for the reader for the last 12 years and I'm very pleased to be able to contribute to the reader's 
new podcast. So first of all then, my favourite line of poetry and why. Well, my favourite line of poetry is this. But westward, look, the land is bright. And many of you will know that that is the final line of a poem by Arthur Hugh Clough, Say not the struggle, nought availeth. It's a poem which I've been familiar with for many years. It was a favourite of my parents, and in fact, a combination of their love of the poem and the outlook from their house uh, built in 1975 was uh, the decision for them to name the house West Clough. The final verse of the poem speaks of the need for hope, I think, the need for hope sometimes in the face of signs and indications that we shouldn't be hoping. Here's the whole verse. And not by eastern windows only, when daylight comes, comes in the light. In front, the sun climbs slow, how slowly, but westward, look, the land is bright. Time was not passing. It was turning in a circle. Seems like these lines were written for this very moment in time, this very moment we find ourselves in. But in fact, they were written way back in 1967 by Gabriel Garcia Marquez in his landmark novel, Hundred Years of Solitude. Hi, I'm Suvi Dogra and I work with the development team for The Reader in London. I was asked if I have a literary earworm that keeps popping into my head. This line from Marquez is one such. However, there's another line that embodies the power of books for me. And this line comes from the namesake by Jumpa Larry. The line is presented to us as a consequence of a conversation Ashok, who's one of the main characters of the book, has with a fellow train passenger. And I would like to read them for you. Do yourself a favor before it is too late. Without thinking too much about it first, pack a pillow and a blanket and see as much of the world as you can. You will not regret it. One day, it will be too late. To which Ashok replies, My grandfather always says, that's what books are for, using the opportunity to open the volume in his hands, to travel without moving an inch. What a line. To travel without moving an inch. It resonates so much at the moment when our usual freedom of movement is curtailed. Books are such a great company and balm to the soul. And they can give us wings and set us off on adventures from the comfort and safety of our homes. I hope you too find some inspiration while reading at home. Many thanks to Claire, Amanda and Suvi. We'll hear from some more reader staff with their literary earworms later on. 
This podcast gives us a great opportunity to make contact and have conversations with all kinds of interesting people with lively, sustaining reading lives. We're going to listen in now to a video chat between Jane Davis, the founder and director of The Reader, and James Marriott, who is the deputy literary editor at The Times newspaper. Over to Jane to explain why she got in touch with James in the first place. Hello, I'm Jane Davis, founder and director of The Reader. I'd been reading James Marriott's pieces in The Times for years, even before he became the deputy literary editor. He'd written opinion pieces that intrigued me about the novel being in trouble, about whether the teaching of literature can help in life. But I'd also noticed that he was deeply committed to some unfashionable writers, Wordsworth, for example. And yet he was always writing as a voice from his generation and moment, as a millennial. I thought, this is an interesting and odd mix of a person, and I want to know more about him. I'd been following him on Twitter, and I noticed that his Twitter page banner was a detail of the lamb from a 1432 painting called The Adoration of the Lamb by Van Eyck. Now, I'd had a really strange experience with that painting. It's an altarpiece in Ghent Cathedral, and I'd been taken to see it by a shared reading colleague when visiting Belgium on reader business. My colleague passionately loved this painting and we stood together in front of it for an hour or more as he took me through the many details and stories connected with it. It was a tremendous experience seeing a painting like that through the eyes of someone who really loved it. It was a kind of reading. It's an experience that's now embedded in me. So when I saw the lamb, which is at the centre of that huge painting, on James Marriott's Twitter page. I knew I had to get in touch, as I really wanted to know what that painting meant to him. When I spotted the lamb, I'd been thinking for a long time, God, I want to get in touch with this guy. I want to know who he is. I want to understand him. So when I saw the lamb, I I just thought, why is James Marriott (laughs) interested? In that strange painting, and how did you come to even know about it? Have you been there in real life? Have you seen it in real life? I've not seen it in real life. There's um, Obviously, they have his painting, the Arnolfini portrait in the National Gallery. And then they have a really beautiful little um, portrait, uh, self-portrait that Van Eyck did next to it. Um, and I've always known of like, that sort of art, you know, that sort of... Um, I guess, sort of Dutch art of the 15th century, or is it 16th yeah, century? Yeah, uh, sorry. Um, and I've always liked how incredibly beautifully detailed those Van Eyck paintings are. And I wonder if we both like him. Be- I wonder if it could be part of our sort of literary sensibilities, because I think literary people are sort of taught to admire details, and we like it when novelists spot little details yeah. and they sort of notice things. And I think that's certainly something that you see in Van Eyck's paintings, and I wonder if that's why we like him, because he does things that we like Yes. We like it when novelists or poets do. Did you grow up as a religious person? In, 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 no, in no way, really. That's interesting because I thought you might have and that you would be one of those people who had absorbed some of that and then come away from it. or be, Because something about the transcendent, you, you, you're walking down the street 
and you having an experience in relation to Tintin Abbey? Yes, and I mean, not having had a, ever had a religious experience, I suppose, it would be hard to say whether that's the same thing. I think art sort of does offer those kind of transcendent, in inverted commas, religious experiences. Although never having had a religious experience, yes, uh, for obvious reasons, I'm sort of yeah. like, you know, I don't want to say those yeah. are exactly the same. My family's real word to scholar is my sister, yeah. um, who's an artist. She's doing an art master's degree. Um, and when I first moved to London, she would always ring me up. I didn't really know anyone in London, so I used mm-hmm. to speak to my sister on the phone, and she'd ring me up and just sort of quote great chunks of words with down the phone at me. And I never sort of, I think often... I, I can take a long time to sort of click with poets. You know, it takes a long time to really sort of understand what a poet's do it, doing or sort of to feel it. And I think often you have to sort of just abandon yourself and sort of stop thinking about it and just sort of let yourself go and, you know, be taken away with that way of doing things. I grew up in Newcastle. Um, my dad's an English teacher and he taught me, he taught me English A-level at least. And I suppose, yeah, it all just always seemed a completely normal thing. Um, everyone in my family liked books. Mm. It was all we really talked about. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't think, yeah, it never it never occurred to me until I sort of made it into the out, outside world that it was abnormal to like yeah. books as much as everyone in my family did in a probably slightly acron- an, anachronistic way. Yeah. Um, I did that we had a television for ages. I always, re- I always read all the time and I remember that, um, I remember like, I mean, I think this is probably quite very common for children who are bookish, but I remember like, you know, sitting on a beanbag and reading like three Narnia books in a row in an afternoon. I didn't think I had any particularly esoteric or um, exciting or um, precocious uh, childhood literary interests. I liked Narnia a lot. I remember reading Philip Pullman. I loved Harry Potter. I think it just sort of followed the kind of trends of my generation. And my, my dad my dad was always quite ambitious. He was always reading, trying to read us things like Pilgrim's Progress, um, uh-huh. things like that. Probably when we were slightly too young to really understand what was going on. Did you put up with it? Did you stop him? Um, we did, yeah. Well, I think my dad's quite a sort of, he's quite a kind of charismatic, enthusiastic person. So it's very hard to sort of resist that mm. when it sort of suddenly comes at you and someone's sort of waving Pilgrim's Progress in your face and telling you it's the best <laughs> thing ever. Um, <laughs> sort of, I didn't really feel like I was equipped to argue against that point of view. Uh, yes. And I'm probably still not. Um, I just um, had a, a similar experience with my seven-year-old grandson who I suggested at the beginning of lockdown that, I could read to him every night and um, we I started reading Treasure Island and I became quite quickly aware that it was the language is too old for him and he, he was struggling with it. So I kept saying, should we give up on this and try something else? And he very manfully just every night would say, no, let's carry on, <laughs> let's carry on. And I, when we came to the end, I said, well, that's the end of that then. And he said, could we have a break for two weeks now, please? <laughs> oh, okay, well, well, skip Treasure Island. <laughs> um, so, um, and then you presumably you went off to read English at university. Yes, I graduated from Oxford and I was really desperate to do a master's degree. I think for no real good reason. I sort of vaguely thought I'd want to be an academic, but yeah. I'd obviously made a terrible academic. So I spent two years working in an antiquarian bookshop mm. that sold rare books and manuscripts in Mayfair, sort of uh, trying to save up to do the master's degree. So then I managed to save up enough money and I moved into my grandma's spare bedroom in East London where I did the master's degree. I don't think I got an awful lot out of it. Yeah, but did anybody good teach you at Oxford? Did anybody good teach you at UCL? So I was very lucky to go to a series of lectures by, have you come across Seamus Perry? He writes for the TLS quite a bit, sometimes the yeah. LRB, who I think is just one of the most brilliant literary critics currently writing. He's incredibly, he writes incredibly passionately 
uh, and is one of those people who sort of writes think emotionally about books rather than just sort of purely intellectually. Um, his series of lectures on Philip Larkin was some of the, were the best thing that I went to in Oxford. I, when I was trying to imagine what it would be like to talk to you, I was thinking he is the kind of person who might have become an academic, but he hasn't done that. And he's chosen a different kind of life. But it sounds as if you're talking about it as if academe was not really a possibility for you. I, I certainly thought about it, but I just think uh, it takes a lot of it. I think when you get down to it, it ends up taking a sort of um, enormous attention to detail and a real sort of capacity to sort of um, grind away at one subject for ages and ages and ages and ages. Mm. Which I which I, do, I don't think my brain works like that. I think I'm much more flighty, um, which is why journalism is perfect, because you can write about something one week and then write about something entirely different the next week. But it's still a very, very rare combination to have that bit of flightiness with whatever is your very deep commitment to serious literature. I suppose so. I, I think... I think a sort of lot of people of my generation discover literature sort of first at university because I think people probably grow up with it less and books are often pushed aside by things like phones and video games. Lots of people, I think, view literature as a kind of primarily academic thing that, you know, mostly happens at university and that's where you first really encounter it and get into it. But I think I always viewed it as sort of an academic thing second and a sort of, I did not hobby is sort of demeans it, but something that you do out of love first. And so that goes back to family and to your father. I think so. Um, how did you make the leap from bookshop to the Times? So, I mean, I was just incredibly lucky, really. Um, I, um, while I was doing my master's degree, I had started writing a few book reviews. I wrote a piece in the Literary Review. The man who's now my boss, uh, Robbie Millen, who's the Times' literary editor, sent me an email saying that he liked it and yeah. would I like to write anything for the Times? And I said, yes, of course, I'd love to write something for the Times. Um, so I started doing as much freelance write, reviewing as possible for the Times. Mm. And then I emailed him one day. I was really panicking about my future and didn't know what I was going to do. And I sort of emailed him sitting in my, grandma's, in my bedroom at my grandma's house saying, um, this is a complete long shot, but the, if there's ever any a job at the Times that you would ever like me to do, would you ever let me know? And he was like, funny you should say that. Um, our deputy book editor has been talking about resigning. Uh, so let's go for a drink. <laughs> um, so we went for a drink. And then I was sort of interviewed by more and more senior people at the Times. Yeah. And then eventually I sort of landed into my job. It was just a, a complete a complete fluke. That's fantastic. I was really very, very lucky. Yeah, I don't think it is a fluke. I think it's a strange pull from the future because this will sound odd because you don't know me but because I've read a lot of your stuff I feel as if I slightly do know you <laughs> and um, I just think you're going to have a really interesting career I hope that's yeah, I hope that's true you are because you're an odd person <laughs> and you you have found yourself in a, a place where you can use that I, sin I sincerely hope so. I really hope you're right. One never likes to tempt fate, though. You wrote about the novel being in deep trouble and yes. um, books are endangered, you said, and we need to stick up for them. What you described about your dad was, and your family, was A, you described a culture of reading. Yes. And then you, and you used the word love. Um, so I think my work for the last 20 years has been to try and develop a culture of reading. When I read in Hansard that in some wards in the UK, 66% of adults can't read, 
Yeah, then you're thinking, yeah, it's no wonder that no one's reading great poetry because loads of people can't even read anything. Yes. If you were put in government of national unity that should not <laughs> be formed and your job was minister for reading literature, can you think of anything to do that would help with the problem? Speaking from my personal experience, I think one of the kind of one of the real problems is the way that literature is taught in universities. And I think that sort of all the kind of ridiculous constraints that are put on arts academics, you know, mm. the um, sort of Research Excellence Foundation, yeah. where they're always they're sort of forced into this treadmill, treadmill yeah. of publishing completely pointless, often completely pointless articles about sort of things that nobody would ever care about. Yes. And they should be sort of let off all that. And if they were just, I think if they were just allowed to reread all their favourite books, mm. they'd be much better <laughs> or much, not, no, I think, I think academics are, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't knock them. I think they're all very committed and intelligent and mm. passionate people, but I think there's much more energy left over for their students. And I, I do think probably the primary purpose of university should be to educate people and make them passionate about literature rather than to produce, an, you mm. know, X number of research papers on the indefinite article in 17th century religious oh, pamphlets and all this yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you said that um, the point of national newspapers was to provide literary criticism. And obviously I realised that was a joke, but I also thought, in a way, I bet for James that also isn't a joke. We're incredibly lucky when you think about this, you know, the state that newspapers are in financially, a lot of them, and how much they're struggling. Mm. That the Times, the Guardian, the Telegraph, even the even the Mail, every every week they have their they have their literary pages employing people to write about books mm. um, is completely extraordinary. And I think people are interested in reading book reviews, um, yeah. especially if they're done in the right way, and especially if they're sort of written to be interesting. Have you read the most recent James Wood collection of essays? Um, no. no. Oh, I assume, you, you, I assume you're a James Wood fan. I imagine you must be. No, I'm not really. I, I've, I've never really read him. <gasps> You've got to read it. You'll yeah, love it. Okay, okay good. You'll Great. love it. Um, it's called Serious Noticing, which I think is what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, noticing things seriously and not, you know, the importance yeah. of noticing. Yeah. I mean, it's just a brilliant collection. I think it's one of the... I think it's, God, is he the best living literary critic? He's one of them. Um, right. You'll love it. Okay, you'll I'm love it. I guarantee go. you'll love it. Okay, I'll go. And thank you. <laughs> okay, so I've got a couple of last questions then. Um, you wrote about um, Tinted Abbey and so on as you were walking along. And I just wondered if you ever do read aloud. So I do rarely. And whenever I do, I think I should more. Um, I was talking, I was having an incredibly, probably over-enthusiastic conversation with uh, one of my friends about um, but Auden recently and then we just started reading bits of Auden aloud and it's just I, I just had this sort of sensation the sort of like electricity coursing through my arms and down into my fingers you know you you know you spend your sort of life loving Auden and reading in your bedroom by yourself but I suddenly realized that speaking it aloud had sort of I mean given me this sort of almost physical shock um, yes. that I hadn't that I don't think you get reading things reading things silently but of course, there's only so much poetry you can read loud at your friend. You can read out loud at your friends before they before they ditch you. <laughs> yeah, true, but maybe sometime you'll come on and do a. Um, we've been doing some Facebook lives and things like that with reading aloud. Yes, so exactly. You could come and do that. That would be absolutely brilliant. And there'll be plenty of people who want to listen to you reading Auden. <laughs> you just I hope need so. to choose something. Hi, I'm Lisa and I'm part of the Readers Learning and Quality team working at our HQ in Liverpool. Or that is, I would usually be, but at the moment I'm working from a makeshift home office in the north of the city.
A poem that gives me courage is one called Going Blind by Raina Maria Rilke. I first came across part of it when I was in my late teens and struggling with anxiety. I suppose I saw myself in it, both the way I felt in that particular moment and that time of my life, but also where I wanted to get to. The line that spoke to me was, and yet, as though, once it was overcome, she would be beyond all walking and would fly. For me, it's about overcoming adversity, but doing so on your own terms. Realising that it's okay to walk your own path at your own pace and not try to compare yourself to others' progress. Hi, I'm Grace Frame, Publications Manager at The Reader. There's a line at the end of one of Christina Rossetti's sonnets from Later Life that sticks with me. And it talks about how we might face our future. It seems to say that the way we do this is by being, and I quote, strong to bear ourselves in patient pain. I remember the first time I really took that line in. And I remember having the poem on the desk in front of me and just wanting to stay with it for a long while, not looking up, not saying anything, just sort of glued to it. I do think that to bear ourselves, as Rossetti puts it, is a kind of task. It's not just about being ourselves, but bearing ourselves as if it's a kind of weight. In a way, I just wonder whether there's actually no greater task for us as individuals. I spent many years thinking, oh, if I could just be like so-and-so. But the task that life has assigned me is to be and to bear myself right to the end. And that includes carrying my own particular joys and sorrows and doubts with me. Since March, all the Reader's face-to-face community activity has been suspended due to the coronavirus pandemic. Staff, volunteers and group members have instead been meeting online or over the phone in order to continue reading together. The numerous shared reading groups taking place in criminal justice settings around the UK have of course been suspended too, so the reader joined forces with the Prison Radio Association to produce a six-part pilot national prison radio podcast, which brought shared reading to people living in prison during lockdown. We're now going to hear an excerpt from episode two of that podcast, in which our Criminal Justice Project's reader-in-residence Fiona McGee, explains more about what shared reading is and then reads the short story A Doll's House by Catherine Mansfield with guests Ali and Victoria. 
It's called Shared Reading, and every week we'll be joined by a member of the reader team who will lead us through it. This week, it's Fiona McGee. Fiona, could you start by explaining Shared Reading and also what the reader is? Well, the reader is a national award-winning charity, and we use the world's sort of best literature, storytelling, stories and poems um, shared in small groups to get people talking, really. We lead groups in a range of different settings. We've got prisons, hostels, libraries, community centres, all, all over, really. We're called The Reader, but you don't have to have ever picked up a book to get involved. Everything that we read is read aloud in the room together. So I suppose through stories and poems, we're sort of exploring you know, the maps of other people's lives and, and the routes that they might have taken and trying to find sort of connections with our lives and things that, that we've sort of you know, lived and been through. And hopefully that brings about connections with each other within the group and also connections to the people in the stories and gets us all thinking about, about our lives, really. So that's shared reading. Joining us today are some NPL voices you might recognise, Ali and Victoria. Would you like to introduce yourselves for us? Hi everyone, my name's Ali. Um, this is the first time I'm doing this reading group and um, yeah, I'm just going to just go with the flow and um, see how it is. <laughs> my name's Victoria. Um, this is the first time I'm ever doing shared learning, but I've done some work with NPR, so I'm excited to see how this goes. You're listening to The Reader. Today, we're reading The Doll's House by Catherine Mansfield. OK, well, let's let's read on. So they've got to school and they're all excited because they're going to tell everyone about this amazing doll's house. But hurry as they might, by the time they had reached the tarred palings of the boys' playground, the bell had begun to jangle. They only just had time to whip off their hats and fall into line before the roll was called. Never mind. Isabel tried to make up for it by looking very important and mysterious and whispering behind her hands to the girls near her. Got something to tell you at playtime. Playtime came and Isabel was surrounded. The girls of her class nearly fought to put their arms around her to walk away with her, to beam flatteringly, to be her special friend. She held quite a court under the huge pine trees at the side of the playground. Nudging, giggling together, the little girls pressed up close. And the only two who stayed outside the ring were the two who were always outside, the little Kelvies. They knew better than to come anywhere near the Burnells. For the fact was, the school the Burnell children went to was not at all the kind of place their parents would have chosen if there had been any choice. But there was none. It was the only school for miles. And the consequence was all the children in the neighbourhood, the judge's little girls, the doctor's daughters the storekeeper's children, the milkmen's, were forced to mix together. Not to speak of there being an equal number of rude, rough little boys as well. But the line had to be drawn somewhere. It was drawn at the Kelvies. Many of the children, including the Burnells, 
were not allowed to speak to them. They walked past the Kelvies with their heads in the air. And as they set the fashion in all matters of behaviour, the Kelvies were shunned by everybody. Even the teacher had a special voice for them and a special smile for the other children when little Kelvy came up to her desk with a bunch of dreadfully common-looking flowers. Well, we'll take another pause there for a moment. Playtime. What does what what do we remember about playtime at school? I used to look forward to it. Did you? Yeah. Okay. What, why was that, Ali? You get to kind of meet everyone and just kind of relax. And, you know, as when you're young in school, you might not have been able to go out as much. You didn't have as much freedom as when you're an adult. So um, when it comes to like playtime, it was like just a time for everyone to socialise and catch up kind of thing. Okay. And, yes. Um, used to look forward to it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you said, so it's like a little bit of um, freedom that kids have. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else about Playtime? Because I, I think it can also be slightly scary, maybe. Yeah, it can. It depends on uh, your kind of social standing and um, what you're like in school. If you're like a, a shy person or a person without many friends, it may be a bit daunting, a bit okay. scary. Your social standing? What? Mm, I mean, like um, your popularity in school kind of thing. So if you're like a, one of the popular kids, you might be really looking forward to kind of socialising with everyone. But if you're not so popular or let's say if you get bullied or just let's say if you haven't got many friends, you might not be looking forward to it as much. You might be a bit, you might look at it like as if you're scared kind of in a way. Right. Okay. What do you make of these other kids that have come in, the Kelvies? I'm just thinking about what you were saying then, Ali, about if you're not. Mm. The Bel- Am I saying it right? The Belvies. The Burnells, the Burnells were possibly judges' children or children of a wealthy parent, okay. and the Kelvies, unfortunately, they're not from a wealthy family, okay. which shows in kids. And this, I just, it's just so crazy because if we go back to the life that we're living in now, we talk mm. about social class and social, um, the whole how certain families were allowed to buy houses in certain areas where other families weren't allowed to buy and a certain amount of people were pushed to different sides so people have different upbringings but Mm. how is it that all of these kids from the same neighborhood even though they have of different classes are together yet there's still a separation in primary school because normally you see that separation based off of i would say primary school i would say that because i'm assuming that they're kids normally we'd see that separation based off of the fact is that we didn't go to the same school because I went to a public school, she went to a private school. But even in the same school, these are things that young kids who really shouldn't even know what the difference is between being rich and poor mm. have. Yeah, That takes me back to what, what Ali was saying as well, Victoria, this thing about social... Was it social standing, you said? I'm just, yeah, yeah that, I'm just thinking, yes. for kids, I'm wondering what what gives you social standing what gets you what makes you either up here or or like the kelvies like totally on the outside parents jobs Mm. so things like parents jobs is is there anything else the way you appear i think even things like 
the dollhouse itself is like just kind of shows their wealth i'm guessing dollhouses ain't cheap and uh, especially if all the kids are excited to hear about it it must not be so common that someone has like a, a brand new dollhouse so i'm guessing they've they've got a lot ah. of money and um other people might not kind of thing or they might have more yeah so it's like what you've got then yeah what you yeah because when you're kids it's all about your toys kind of thing when you're yeah. a kid that kind of like shows a little bit of who's popular and who's not if yeah. the kid's got toys kind of thing yeah what do you think ali would be like the the modern equivalent of that doll's house then for kids now i'm guessing it'd be like games and stuff so like who's got the brand new games and like clothes and stuff like that so you do we think that it still does work in the same way though even though this was written like about 100 years ago is this is the same stuff still going on yeah yeah i'm guessing it's like if a kid went to school with a brand new phone and like everyone's kind of excited or if he went with a little game console or something to school it's like the same thing but obviously back in the day they had um dollhouses right okay so um, yeah it's just one of those things if a kid's got loads of toys everyone kind of wants to know like wants to be around them and kind of play with the toys kind of thing yeah i think there's so much different factors because some of it is toys i would say but then at school I could say I've got a big toy, but you'd never know because you never come to my house. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Mm. So I think like also because I can only go off of base of experience. I grew up in care. So before I was in care, I was neglected and right. I wasn't popular in school at all because my clothes wasn't the latest. My I, mm. I didn't smell great all the time. I was sleeping in class because I wasn't sleeping at home. And then when right. I did go into care in that same school in year six, my life was totally different from the years before because I then was with someone who was able to buy me clothes. So I had a night pair of trainers now instead of old trainers from my older sister. Like my clothes okay. were different. I was wearing different clothes every day. Yeah. My foster mother would comb my hair in the morning and my hairstyle would be different because she'd take me to the hairdressers. So I'd come in with beads in my hair mm. and everyone would be like, oh my God, your hair looks so nice. And then that day, all the girls are playing with you and you're playing polo on the wall. Do you get what mm. I mean? Or like skipper so rope. Like presentation so, and stuff. So sometimes yeah. I think it's like a pair of and what you're wearing as well because at the same Mm. time like I did say before even though young people shouldn't know these things unfortunately they're exposed to just knowing that oh she smells or oh her kids are she's not wearing the right things or the parents will come and be like oh look Mm. at that child bless her she's in her older sister's trainers or her trainers are like yeah that, that feels really important that Victoria thanks for sharing that because that's fine I suppose it's 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 making me think about you know I was wondering before about whether the Kelvies realized that's how people look at it I'm yeah. wondering if you're I mean do, do you think if if, if you're all right to, to say yeah. you know do you do you think you were aware of it at the time? One thousand percent. You're aware of right. it. You're aware that people have new things and you don't. You're aware that right. you're okay with how you're living because you're living it but then when you go outside of the home and you see how other people are living it's like an envy it's like oh like I'm content with what I have because it's what I have but I do see that other people have more yeah or that little girl has like red bubbles in her hair where I'm probably got an elastic band where it's just holding up all my hair because my dad doesn't know how to comb her hair and there's no woman in my dad's life or my clothes aren't color coordinated or I don't have the latest Barney jumpers or a Barney toy or or do you get what I mean? And right. all the yeah. girls 
would come yeah. with like their Barney, yeah. like now it's like LOL girls or these like yeah. little, and they would come and my niece, for example, she has all the clothes. So I can imagine someone in the school who probably does like LOL girls and only can see it on the TV, but can't, their parents can't afford to buy yeah. them the merchandise as well. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, just, just before we move on. Yeah. I, I suppose it's important to sort of keep that, that thought in mind, isn't it? Cause I'm remembering what you were saying, Ali, about, you know, t- to you, playtime was just brilliant you know we're out of class I'll be with my mates Mm. and it's a bit of freedom but it's Mm. funny to once we started sort of unpicking it all the other stuff that's going on as well maybe for for some people I hated Um, playtime you hated playtime yeah there were times when I didn't go out to play and like right. I said, in year six, I was a totally mm. different person because there was times when I was just withdrawn and I used to stay in class and I used to stay with my teacher, Mr. Armstrong, because I used to think he was Neil Armstrong that went to the moon. He used to tell <laughs> us that he was Neil Armstrong. Yeah. So I used to sit down with Mr. Armstrong and talk to him about going to the moon yeah. and because it was my time to escape away from the kids because I felt like that was when kids, like you can see now with the Kelvies and the Brunels, yeah. would pick on you because they couldn't pick on you in front of teachers. Kids it will can pick be on quite you. doggy yeah. dog, yeah, can't dog, it? Yeah, in, so in, they will pick yeah. on you in the playground or they will go off and play and they will play like you know what is it tag and then you'll be tagged and then everyone will laugh and run away from you and it's like I don't even want to play (laughs) like I'm not playing (laughs) that's it for this episode of the reader podcast we are grateful to the prison radio association and all the contributors to the NPR podcast especially to Fiona Ali and Victoria Many thanks to James Marriott and all the members of the Reader Network who contributed to this episode. Special thanks to Chris Lynn and his transformative editing skills. We'll be back soon for more conversation, recommendations and shared reading. Till then, please visit the website or check Twitter and Facebook to find out more about the Reader and how you can get involved with our work. And please like, subscribe and spread the word about the Reader podcast. Till next time, goodbye.